0: We began a brief series in the book of Job last week. This is our second sermon. We're going to take about four sermons, so two more, Lord willing. One reason that the book of Job is in the Bible is not just to teach us about how we can suffer well, but how we can help others to suffer well. That's this morning's sermon. Last week was how we can suffer well. This week, how we can help others suffer well. How are we to respond to each other as a church when we walk through seasons of suffering individually? What does it mean to weep with those who weep? What does it not mean? This morning we're gonna look at the lessons we learn from Job's three friends as they seek to counsel him through his trial. Things we learn, things we don't learn. We're going to cover quite a bit of terrain this morning. Chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 31, verse 10. Don't worry, we're not even going to touch most of the chapters. We're going to hit the high points, and I'll explain sort of the structure of the book and why we're taking it this way as we go through. Three points to this morning's sermon. What suffering believers actually need secondly what suffering believers often receive and finally what suffering believers already have first what suffering believers actually need first of all suffering believers need friends suffering believers need friends immediately after the catastrophe that job is experienced in his life we read in verse 11 of chapter 2 that job had three friends Praise God if any of us have three friends. Three friends that will cut off their own life to serve you. The word for friend here is a strong word in Hebrew. It means one who has pledged himself to another. This is why Jesus' words were no doubt precious to his disciples when he said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. See, friends in our culture is a pretty insignificant thing friendship is a here today gone tomorrow thing I mean we have Facebook friends really Facebook friends people who have pledged themselves in covenant to be with us all the days of our life no that's not friendship that's acquaintances and that's fine too we should have plenty of acquaintances that's what those are nice things to have But biblical friendship is a serious commitment. It's the kind of commitment that we express to one another in church membership. This is why we have a church covenant. This is why we pledge ourselves to one another to be biblical friends to one another, to show up in our suffering with one another. Friendship in the Bible means someone who is intensely concerned for the welfare of another. These are friends to the end. We should count ourselves blessed if we have one friend like that. Many people don't even have one. But Job is triply blessed as he has three of them friends who will show up for him when life gets hard. They'll get on their phone, they'll jump in a car, they'll fly on a plane, and they'll be with you in your time of trouble. Suffering is hard, but as most of us, many of us, all of us know, Suffering alone is a whole lot harder. A profound sense of loneliness and abandonment often accompanies deep suffering. Job says this, in fact, in Job 19, if you want to turn there quickly, Job 19, he expresses something of the isolation that his suffering has brought upon him and the alienation he feels as he experiences it. Job 19, verses 13 and 14 Job says, He has put my brothers far from me, talking about God, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. Verse 14, My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. Now, some of his relatives died, right? His children, especially. But his distant relatives weren't there when he was suffering. See, we can't go wrong, church, by being a friend for and a friend to each other in our grief. Those suffering among us need friendship more than they need anything. It's more helpful, rather than trying to relieve or even understand a person's suffering, to just be with them in it. Press into that darkness with them. Hang in there with them in that moment, in that space, in that pain. Suffering believers need friends. Secondly, suffering believers need presence. Suffering believers need presence. We're told again in verse 11 that each of Job's three friends, quote came from their own place so they didn't live around job necessarily and that they had made an appointment together to come see him their first instinct when they heard of jobs suffering was to get near him they got together and they arranged a time to go and visit job the ministry of presence Being in a person's physical presence is so important to those who are suffering. Silent presence is inestimably precious to people in terrible pain. We have a great summary of the ministry of presence in verse 13 of chapter 2 where we read again. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Can you imagine that? A week in a person's presence without talking. Can you do seven minutes? I have a hard time with seven minutes and not saying something. They did a week. Seven days, seven nights, not saying anything. Why do they not say anything? Because to say something would pull dignity out of Joe's suffering. It wouldn't dignify his suffering. They're dignifying his suffering by not talking about it. Presence means just being there, sitting with others in their grief, weeping with them, allowing some of their burden to fall on you. Presence also applies that words aren't as important as just being there. Job's friends are never wiser in this book than in verse 13. As soon as chapter 3 and 4 and 5 begin, they blow it. Job's friends started out right when they sat in silence with their friend. The trouble started when they started talking and trying to explain it to him. God says in Isaiah 66, 13, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. What does God do in our comfort, to comfort us in our suffering? Well, he says, I'm like a good mom. I pick you up in your screaming and I hold you close. Moms aren't telling their babies why they're crying. They're holding their babies until they stop crying. A good mom holds her child Rocking her gently, letting her cry, or letting him cry. And this is how God cares for us and how he invites us to care for others. So suffering believers need friends, suffering believers need presence. Finally, suffering suffering believers need sympathy. Suffering believers need sympathy. We are told of the express reasons for why Job's friends visited him at the end of verse 11, where we read, They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. Sympathy carries the idea of co-suffering. We are entering into the suffering of others. How do we do this? Again, Job's friends serve as a good model here. First of all, they look at Job. You see what twice in these verses we are told something. Look at verse 12. And they saw him from a distance. They did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And verse 13 at the end, they didn't say a word, for they saw that his suffering was very great. They're looking at Job. And as they look, they don't even recognize him. Why is this? Because great suffering changes us physically. We must be prepared for that. And expect that. Not being surprised that affliction changes our friends. If a friend is suffering, we must pay attention to how that suffering is affecting them. Is it manifesting itself emotionally, physically, spiritually? How did Job's friends allow Job's suffering to affect them, we're told that they joined him in his suffering. Just like Job did in chapter 1 verse 20, so his friends join him in a show of solidarity with him in his grief. In chapter 1 verse 20, after Job suffers, we read, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And then we're told that when his friends arrive and see him, in verse 12 of chapter 2, they tore their robes. They sprinkle dust on their heads toward heaven. They are getting down in the dirt with Job. Literally. They too tear their clothes. And they too weep alongside of him. And they don't say anything. And as we will soon see, when they do start talking, not only do his friends say some crazy things, but so does Job. Dear ones, when we are suffering, we need friends. Friends who will give us their presence And their sympathy, Job's friends were true friends. They brought Job's lonely ash heap, to Job's lonely ash heap, they brought their compassion of silent presence. What a great gift. Think about all that Job has has suffered. His family's dead. His fortune's lost. His fame is gone. He has painful seeping sores from head to toe. He's fearful and anxious, according to chapter 3. He lost his appetite, according to chapter 6. He can't sleep, according to chapter 7. When he does, he has nightmares, chapter 7, verse 14. He has impaired vision, chapter 17, verse 7. He has weight loss, chapter 19, verse 20. He has indigestion and bad breath and heartburn, according to chapter 30, verse 27. His skin is falling off, according to chapter 30, verse 30. His bones ache, according to chapter 33, verse 21. This kind of suffering would cause a, per, a normal person to not want to hang out with Job. And yet, his friends lean in knowing that he needs presence, friendship, and sympathy. Brothers and sisters, if Job's three friends can be like that to Job in his suffering, can we not be friends like that to each other in our lesser suffering? Can we not show up with sympathy? Can we not show up with presence? Now, granted, we can't all do this for everybody. This is why this is a church responsibility. The church takes upon itself to care for the church. One of the ways we've been doing that in recent days is with meals for the Carrick family. As they continue to have to care for Wesley in his decreasing physical condition. And we're continuing to serve meals to him. And we have been serving meals to their family once a week for a long time now and we're continuing to do that brothers and sisters here's where we gotta lean in here's where friendship takes on a whole nother dimension right and so I wanna encourage those of you who maybe haven't entered into that yet to help alleviate some of the burdens that some of our brothers and sisters who have been doing it are experiencing check your email get on the the take them a meal list and sign up for it even if you can't do it in perpetuity you can sign up for one week and that can alleviate not only a brother and sister who are continuing to suffer, but also those who are trying to care for them in the midst of their suffering. encourage you to do that. So this is what suffering believers really need. They need friends. They need presence. They need sympathy. All as demonstrated faithfully by Job's three friends here. Secondly, let's talk about what suffering believers often receive. What suffering believers often receive. Sadly... In the place of friendship, presence, and sympathy, we often give others something differently in their suffering, well-intentioned though it be. In this large section of the book of Job that we're considering this morning, chapter 2 to chapter 31, we get three rounds of conversations between Job and his three friends. So, Job is fairly easy to understand in terms of its overall structure. Chapter 2 to chapter 31 are three cycles of conversations that happen between Job and his friends. Chapter 4 through 14 is one cycle. Chapter 15 to 21 is another cycle. And chapter 22 to 31 is another cycle. You have the different friends sharing different takes on why Job is suffering, and you often get Job's response to what they have said. So essentially, what chapter 2 through 31 is, is. Job and his friends arguing back and forth about why God has allowed Job to suffer. That's what it is. Now, what do we learn from all this? Three things. Suffering believers often get blamed for their suffering. Suffering believers often get blamed for their suffering. Let's read chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Eliphaz, one of his friends speaking to Job, says... Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Okay, that's Eliphaz's take. What about another friend? Turn to chapter 8. Let's get Bildad's take. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Okay. Eliphaz blames Job. Bildad blames Job. What about Zophar? Turn to chapter 11. Zophar speaks. Verses 14 and 15. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then, you will lift up your face without blemish. You'll be secure and you won't fear. What's the uniform take of his three friends so far? Job is suffering because Job sinned. Now, what do we know from the very outset of the book? That is not true. We know it both from the historical narrative itself and God's own explanation of it. But friends, this can be our temptation as well. If we don't say it, we think it, don't we? You see someone who's suffering greatly and you think, ooh, what must they have done? God's disciplining them. What unrighteousness are they hiding? There's some secret sin. Maybe it's in their kids. Maybe it's the wife. It's been said Job's friends were great until they opened their mouths and some of us are too their basic premise is God is angry with job job is being punished by God as a sinner. the friends are convinced that because God is just and fair he would not punish job without cause therefore job must be engaged in hidden sin for which he needs to repent now let's give the friends a little bit of benefit of the doubt here okay they're right at a certain level is God just absolutely does God leave sin unpunished you better not believe he does he doesn't not one every sin gets punished by every human being whether on the cross or in hell so God is just God is fair God is righteous they're right about all that God is sovereign but they don't have the complete picture they don't have the full story in fact Chapter after chapter Job protests to them his profound disagreement with their assessment on his suffering. He knows he's done nothing to deserve this level of punishment. He knows he's a sinner. That's why he offered sacrifices for himself and for his kids. And Job is even tempted to think by the counsel of his friends that God is somehow being capricious, that he's not really good or fair in certain aspects. Now, why do Job's friends blame him for his suffering? I want you to think about this with me. Why that impulse in them and in us sometimes? Why? Where does that come from? Do you remember last week where Job was offering sacrifices for the sins of his children? In chapter 1, what do we read about the nature of those sacrifices? He says in chapter 1, verse 5, that the reason he's offering these sacrifices is because it may be that my children have sinned. It may be. It may be. We're told that he did this because he was fearful that his children might have sinned. Why would he be fearful of that? Why did he feel like he had to get up every single morning and offer another sacrifice for his children in case in their legitimate good feasting they may have taken it a little too far? Because I want to propose to you that Job had in some ways the same perspective on suffering that his friends did. And God is interested in this book in correcting everyone. Job and all of his three friends about their perspective on the way suffering works in believers' lives in this life. See, both Job and his friends had this idea that God punishes sin and sinners immediately in this life. Otherwise, why is Job offering sacrifices every morning? He's scared that one of his kids might be killed by God for their sin. See, sometimes we think, oh, it's just Job being extra pious. No, it's Job being fearful. Because Job shares this perspective, he offers his sacrifices perhaps as a way to insulate his family from suffering. And why the sudden turn in Job's friends? They're sitting with him one moment and then they're accusing him the next. They turn on Job as a way of defending themselves from suffering. They are plagued by the same fears and the same anxieties that Job has, just in different ways. Look at chapter 6, verse 21. Chapter 6, verse 21. We get a real psychological insight into why they're doing what they're doing, especially Job here. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity, and you are afraid. Why are they afraid? You see my calamity and you're afraid. They simply can't believe that Job is genuinely righteous because if that is true, they could have the same fate. That's why. They're using his suffering to protect themselves. Innocent suffering threatens the legalist. Innocent suffering threatens the moralist who thinks that if I do things good for God, God's got to do things good for me. If Job is suffering innocently, by the way, that's not Christian thinking. It takes no regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in your life to do good things for God so that you hope he'll do good things for you. That is a prostitution of God. Check your heart, dear saint. Why are you in this Christian thing? I've had examined examine my heart many times over the course of my Christian journey. Why am I in this? Why am I following Christ? Really, Mark, really. Why are you doing this? Is it for God? Or something else? See, his friends are threatened by this because if Job is suffering innocently, then all their good behavior would turn out to be no defense against unimaginable suffering for themselves. Therefore, they try to find some distinction between Job and themselves that can protect them from suffering. If, see, if Job is suffering because he's wicked, their righteousness would keep them safe. But if he's suffering because he is righteous, then what assurance do they have that they won't suffer too? See, this is one reason we talk about each other's suffering in ways that aren't redemptive. Because we hope that in gossiping or talking about other people and their suffering, that that will keep it from ever coming into our lives. Ironically, the blaming of Job's friends is actually a way that they are seeking to comfort themselves. Blame is one way we insulate ourselves from believing that suffering will happen to us because by blaming others, we're exercising a moral superiority over them. Often, our talking and explanation for others' suffering has more to do with our own fears, our own anxieties, and our own insecurities than anything that has to do with the suffering person. God will use the suffering of others brothers and sisters, to expose areas in your life where you fail to trust him too. And Job's friends are not up for that. They are not up for being tested and tried by Job's suffering and and being called to examine their own hearts as to how they would respond if they were in a similar situation. So they're constantly finding a way that they don't have to entertain the idea that something could happen to them that way too. Brothers and sisters, as we speak to those who are suffering, we should constantly ask ourselves who we're trying to comfort. By saying the things we're saying, are we trying to comfort ourselves? Or are we trying to comfort them? It's very easy to think we're consoling our friend when we're actually more interested in our own comfort. So one of the ways we can tell that we're reading the book of Job correctly is if that we finish the book with a greater caution about how we talk to people who are suffering. If you have learned that lesson, you've read the book of Job correctly. If you speak to others with a deeper humility, an unwillingness to assume that we understand what God is doing in the midst of someone's suffering, and a deep hesitancy to blame them for their suffering, you are getting wise. You are learning what God would have you learn from the book of Job. So suffering believers often get blamed for their suffering. Secondly, suffering believers often get interpretations of their suffering. The problem with Job's comforters is not that they're heretics. Much of what they say is true. We do reap what we sow eventually. The problem is the moralistic worldview that governs their thinking and compels them to reason backward from suffering to sin. They believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And they don't seem to know that the world is fallen and under a curse and not everything that happens to God's people is a response to their direct sinfulness. As a result, they end up giving terrible, though well-meaning advice for 25 chapters. The less we know about Scripture even though we think we might know Scripture very well, the more dangerous we can be to people in pain. Beware of the dangers of theologically illiterate counseling. The less we know, the more dangerous we are. Careless speculation about sin and suffering only heaps additional burden upon people who are already experiencing horrific pain. This eventually leads Job to say in chapter 16, verse 1, Miserable comforters are you all. Instead of answers, Job wanted his friends to have mercy on him. He says this in chapter 19. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Just have mercy for a second. Quit talking. Look at me. He says, Proverbs 26, 9, like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. And unfortunately, where you find highly merciful people who are drawn to people's pain, these are the people who are going to show up in a moment. These are the people who are going to be there with their presence, be there with their sympathy, be there with their friendship, and not know how to talk about the Bible. Where you find highly merciful people who are drawn to people's pain with a sincere compassion, you often find a profound indifference to the life of the mind, to education, to a lack of biblical understanding, and a black-and-white approach to Christianity that is unhelpful. It's insensitive and it's unfaithful to the text of Scripture. Sometimes this manifests itself in a pronouncement, God's going to heal you if you'll only have faith. Those are well-meaning, sincere words said by people who love that person, and they're profoundly unbiblical and unhelpful. God may not heal you in this life. He will heal you if you have faith. But it may not come in the way you expect it. They're right and they're wrong. God will one day heal his people, but it might not happen now. Sometimes this ignorance manifests itself in a too-quick appeal to God's sovereignty. All things work together for good, brother. Remember, what God intends for evil or others intend for evil, God means for good, sister. All good things to say. However, just because this is biblical doesn't mean it's always tactful or helpful to say in the moment. God meant it for good is said by Joseph, not people to him, after years of suffering, not to Joseph during his years of suffering. Context is king, right? Don't proof text it and apply it in a way that it wasn't intended to be applied in the moment. That was said by Joseph himself after years of reflection. It wasn't said to a well-meaning Christian, to somebody who's suffering in the moment. So, can you imagine somebody coming up to Joseph in the midst of his angst and frustration and gathering around him at the well and shouting down, Don't worry, Joseph. God means all this for good. Similarly, soon after Paul teaches that all things work together for good, he admonishes us to weep with those who weep. So before quoting the former, let's make sure that we're willing to practice the latter. Listen, if you're drawn to help others and are not growing in your theological literacy, your grasp of the Bible, or your ability to helpfully and faithfully diagnose the conditions of the soul, your efforts will help in harming the person. Your motives might be pure, but your results will be damaging. If you are the kind of person who says, I just love people, I listen to them, I help them, I'm here for them, but you make no effort to grow in your ability to rightly handle God's word and apply it to people in the midst of life's distressing perplexities, you can wield a world of damage. And there are people with just enough biblical knowledge. They know just enough verses. They don't know the story, though. They can't tell you what Haggai's about. but they know a verse or two. You can know the principles and not the theology. You need to know the theology when you counsel. Job's friends simply didn't know enough to offer intelligent comfort to Job. And that's why they should have stopped talking long before. This book should have been a lot shorter. But God didn't want it to be shorter. Why? so that we would get to the end and say, God, help me not to be like that. <laughs> Lord, help me not to be like that. And you know what? When you read it and God puts it in your life, you're like, oh yeah, I totally don't want to be like that. And God sanctifies this truth to you. It's not like, okay, I can't talk to somebody. Don't, don't misunderstand me, dear ones. Don't misunderstand me. Don't be paralyzed because, oh, I don't know all the theology I should know. I don't know all the Bible, so therefore I shouldn't try to comfort anybody. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about as we go about comforting, we should also go about growing so we can be helpful, really helpful. Job's friends, to a certain extent, their ignorance is understandable, but we live on the other side of the cross with the fullness of Scripture. Our ignorance is not something that should be tolerated. We have all that we need to know. There's no excuse for that kind of ignorance in our church. Therefore, if you love people, We need to pray and study the word so that we can say true and helpful things to people who are suffering. Giving them interpretations that are consistent with scripture, not antithetical to it. So, we've seen that suffering believers often get blamed for their suffering. They often get interpretations of their suffering. Thirdly, suffering believers often get exasperation with their suffering. We're told that Job's hardship continued for months on end. Chapter 7 says, Like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Brothers and sisters, when we're walking alongside suffering friends, don't expect a timeline. Job's friends were eventually worn out by how long it took Job to get over his loss. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Or chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk and in words which he can do no good? Or chapter 11, verse 2. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? I mean, they're full of talk too, but they're judging Job for being full of talk. And they're exasperated with him for talking so much. And he's exasperated with them for talking so much. See, a key lesson here is we need to be able to put up with each other for a long time in the midst of suffering. There is no timeline to chart a friend's grief. We have dear widows who, decades after the loss of their husbands, will still tear up when they talk about him. We have moms in this church who have lost their children years earlier who still hurt every day. A friend's grief can be taxing. You may want them to get over their loss and get back to normal, but for them, life will never be normal, at least not the normal that they once knew. So love them enough to walk at their pace. There's nothing wrong with those whose grief lasts until they meet Jesus face to face. Talking to a hurting person also is an extremely hazardous undertaking. That's one thing you learn from this book. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people are irrational. Hurt people are immoderate. Hurt people are inconsistent because they're hurt people. You need to know that if you're going to try and be a friend to someone who's suffering, you will be injured. You will get bloody. Because love is a contact sport. Particularly when dealing with suffering people. Part of joining our friends in their suffering means we are not quick to correct them when they say theologically untrue things. We do say theologically true things. That's necessary. But it's not the only thing we say. We need to resist the urge to lecture, resist the urge to fix, and instead just keep showing up. That's what suffering believers often receive. Blame, exasperation, interpretations. Thirdly and finally, what suffering believers really have. I do not want this sermon to be taken in the wrong way Listen, if you're here this morning and you're listening to this sermon as one who is suffering and you're judging our church for ways they haven't loved you, you're missing the point. Okay? Does everybody understand that? Because it's a temptation when you talk about things like this. Instead of thinking, how can I be a friend to the suffering? We think about, how have people not been friends to me in my suffering? And that is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to be a compassionate, suffering friend to others. That's what this sermon is about, not the suffering themselves. That's last week. Don't import last week onto this week and leave the church angry because nobody's loving you that way. Are you loving anybody else that way? Well, okay. Why are you loving them that way then? See, if you get mad because people don't love you that way back, why are you loving them in the first place? For God's sake or your sake? Sounds like it's for your sake. To get something in return. And this is why we need to camp here. What we already have. Because as we sing often, friends will fail you. I will fail you. Your deacons will fail you. You will fail you. Your wife will fail you. Your husband will fail you. Your children will fail you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ will fail you multiple times and disappoint you over and over and over again. What will you do in that moment? I'm going to give you three precious things that you already have that you can lean into in those moments and that are all sufficient for every disappointment we face with the friends that love us poorly. <laughs> what, the su- what suffering believers already have. First of all, suffering believers have access to God. <laughs> you have God's ear, dear one. You have God's ear. This is why Job responds the way he does. Does he immediately take his complaint to his friends? No, he takes his complaint to God. In chapter 3, he says over and over again God, why haven't you taken me out yet? You let everybody else die around me, but I'm still breathing. Let me die. Just let me die he's complaining to god. Job cannot see any reason now for why he should ever be given life, but he's expressing it the right way. He knows he has access to god and he goes to god. See brothers and sisters, crying out to god in the midst of our suffering is not sin. Crying isn't cursing. He's not cursing god, he's cursing himself. Denying our pain or speaking in Christian platitudes isn't what God wants us to do. He wants us to go to Him. The real danger in times of suffering is that instead of crying out to God, we become angry with Him or we blame Him or we avoid Him entirely or we escape. We medicate. Netflix is calling. It will fix. The bottle. A joint. That'll help. Or maybe a lunch with somebody else that I can gripe about things to. Or a dinner where I have other people over and we can commiserate. That is not the way you handle your pain. It's not going away that way. You need to lament before God what is causing you pain, take it to Him directly. If you are suffering, dear one, don't run away from God. Run to Him. And the reason we don't run to Him is because when we lament, it exposes a lot of junk about ourselves. Because we actually have to say things to God we would never think we'd actually say. But at least we're honest now, and at least we can deal with our pain now. As John Piper says, it's never right to be angry with God, and it's never right to not tell Him when you are. Many of the psalms are filled with laments, with people complaining to God Himself. And isn't it a testimony, listen to this, isn't it a testimony to God's tender mercy that at the very moments the psalmists are complaining to God, the Holy Spirit is inspiring them to write it down. God is inspiring the complaints against Himself by the Holy Spirit. This is our God who inspires the very complaints he receives. He's strong and his shoulders are big enough. Our God has his big boy pants on and he can handle it. He can carry our burdens. So tell God your struggles and be honest before him. You have access to him, use it. Suffering believers have access to God. Secondly, suffering believers have hope in God. Suffering believers have hope in God. It's instructive to us. That in all of Job's suffering, he never stops looking to God. Chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I'll hope in him. I know that my Redeemer lives. Chapter 19, verse 25. Chapter 23, verse 10. He knows the way that I take and when he's tried me, I'll come out as gold. God doesn't ever give Job an answer to the whys of chapter 3. Why? 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 Because our answer, his answer to our why is not what we ultimately need. There is no peace in the why. Our peace is only found in knowing the one who knows the why, whether we ever know the why or not. Are you willing to turn away from the answer you want to embrace the God you have? We need God himself more than we need answers from God, dear ones. We can rest content so long as we know that he knows the reasons for our suffering, even though we don't and he knows, and they're good. Thirdly, finally, suffering believers have compassion from God. Suffering believers have compassion from God. Proverbs 14, 2, The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. Those of us who have suffered deeply, we know that verse. We've been in that room where we feel all alone that nobody knows what we're going through. Do you know why no one knows what you're going through? Because nobody can know what you're going through. The Bible says it. A heart, the heart in the heart alone knows its own bitterness. No one can enter into that. Well, there's one person who can enter into that. And he isn't in the flesh right now in front of you. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that even as friends give us their presence and their sympathy... It will never be enough. No one can truly know the bitterness or joy of another's heart. And there's often a temptation on the part of those suffering to hold that against the person who's trying to express sympathy and presence. Be thankful for what they're trying to do and then let that knowledge lead you to the one and remind you of the only one who can truly heal your broken heart. It is not another man. It is not another woman. It is not a brother or sister in Christ. It is Christ Jesus himself, the Savior. He is able to sympathize with us in a way that no one else can. And the mere reality that no human being is able to fully sympathize with us in our suffering should not lead us to bitterness or anger toward another person, but to the realization that Christ and Christ alone can meet this need in my life. And therefore, I must bring my heart to the one who alone can heal it. No other people can be your sympathetic high priest. Jesus reserves that right for himself alone. Accept no substitutes as you won't find them. No one knows your pit of despair except the one who has entered it and gone deeper. Jesus is the only innocent sufferer. He is the true Job. Jesus is the true friend and counselor to all those who suffer pain. In the neat and tidy world of Job's friends, only the wicked perish only the good prosper Eliphaz said it best in Job 4 7 consider now who being innocent has ever perished hey Eliphaz I know one I know he hasn't come yet for you so I don't expect you to know this but his name is Jesus Christ son of God the only innocent one who ever perished and it wasn't because he was guilty on the cross, Jesus, though innocent, perished for us, the guilty, falsely accused by a bunch of wise guys. Abandoned by friends, tormented, stripped, naked, abused, murdered. He perished so that we might not. On the cross, Jesus took on our sins and absorbed the full strength of justice on our behalf, sinking down into the depths of hell and forsakenness that Job only had a thimbleful of. No one has ever suffered more. No one ever could. Such a depth of love can meet our need in the moment of pain. Job knew this, and we can know this too. Job sixteen nineteen to 21 Job says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. He would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Oh, Job, you knew more than you thought you did. Do you ever have an advocate in heaven who advocates for you? Who is at the right hand of God, ensuring that all the punishment that comes into your life or discipline that comes into your life is never punishment for sin. It's refinement and renewal. When Job fails to find comfort in the presence and counsel of his friends, he's helped by the knowledge of a friend in the court of heaven who would argue his case and a, as a son of man might do for his neighbor. And brothers and sisters, we know that friend. We have that friend. Christ is that friend when all other friends fail. Let's pray. Brothers and sisters, just take a moment as we sit in silence to pray to the Lord about your particular suffering or what particularly impacted you from his word this morning. And I will conclude us in prayer in just a moment. Father, we thank you for the reminder of what we have in Christ. The access that we have to you. The intercession that we have from you. The sympathy that we receive from you. The compassion that we have from you. We are sorry when we don't suffer well. Either in our own suffering or helping others in theirs we can blame or we can interpret or we can get exasperated help us to be like you Jesus help us to offer the brothers and sisters in our congregation our friendship and our compassion our sympathy our presence and our wisdom when that time comes for the ways that we often manifest that wisdom in the early days is just by saying nothing but showing up and being there. Lord Jesus, make us wise. We have the mind of Christ. We have all that we have to be equipped according to your word. Equip us with everything good for doing your will and work in us all those things that are pleasing in your sight. We ask it in your mighty saving name. Save us again this morning. Save us again from being the kinds of friends we shouldn't be and save us into being the kinds of friends we should be. And thank you that you are our eternal and everlasting friend who will never disappoint us, who will never let us down in the long run, and who invites us to you continually. So we come. We come this morning with our sin, with all of our remaining baggage and issues, with all of our struggles with our relationships. We come. We collapse at your feet. Take us, remake us, mold us, shape us, Save us, Jesus. In your name we pray.